Sticks and stones will break my bones, but, well, you know the rest. <laughs> and you also know that it's rubbish, don't you? Rubbish. Language can be so hurtful, and sometimes language that is um, deeply insulting has become so commonplace that people fail to notice. Um, I don't suppose many of you have been losing sleep this week over it, but you know that abuse of language, amongst other things, is costing all kinds of repercussions in English cricket. See, I told you you weren't losing sleep over it. You know, but it, just because the kind of language that people use, this, in this instance of a racist nature, just becomes so much part of the background that people don't actually notice. Or at least the severity of it. That things do hurt. And none of us like to have be stuck with a name or a description or a title that is, that is degrading and, and, and a put down. We don't like that. And I think one of the people who has had, gets the rawest of raw deals for that is uh, poor old Thomas. Doubting Thomas, he's called, just on the basis of that short episode, that short passage that Leslie read a few minutes ago. He's stuck with that just because of that. Now, the part of the story that Thomas had missed in verses 19 to 23, and the whole chapter's on page 1089 of the church Bibles, and you might um, get a, an overview of it there. The part that he missed was on the very first Easter Sunday. The tomb was empty, but from verses 19 to 23, there's the further indication that the resurrection has taken place because the risen Jesus came to his followers. Now, both of these things are crucially important, both the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances. You see, if the tomb was not empty, and Jesus' followers were saying, oh, we've seen Jesus, he's risen, the rest of the Jerusalem and others would be saying, no, he's not. There he is. Look, there's the body. There he is, stone cold dead. Don't give us this rubbish about resurrection, and he's risen. They needed the empty tomb. But more than just the empty tomb, they needed his resurrection appearances, because otherwise people would be saying, well, okay, I'll, I'll give you that the body's not there, but we don't know what's happened to it. Somebody might have taken it, and we know from the Gospels that that story was, was tried to be spread. So, it's not enough just that there's an empty tomb. There has to be both of these things, both the empty tomb and these encounters with the living Christ. So, they build together a strong case for making out that Jesus rose. All the more so because when we read these accounts of Jesus appearing, they, they definitely have the feature of eyewitness accounts. If the story was made up, surely it would be Jesus who was shining with glory. But he's not. It's a couple of angels who are at the tomb who are shining. Jesus, in fact, was looking so ordinary that he was mistaken for the gardener. If the story had been made up, then it certainly in first century Palestine would not have been women who were the first witnesses. Nor would, if the story had been made up, would it be likely to feature mistakes and disbelief on the part of Jesus' disciples. But here, as well as the empty tomb, we have the appearances of Jesus. And then there's a third part of the argument here, and that is changed lives. 
Suddenly, Jesus' disciples were very different. Now, Thomas, in these verses that Leslie read, is an early example of what was to come. He's an early example of people who say, I'm not going to believe it because I don't believe that happens, and who are not going to look at the evidence. I don't believe that stuff happens, therefore there's no need for me to look and see if a case can be made. Thomas had all these parts in place. There was the empty tomb, verses 1 to 10 of chapter 20. Mary Magdalene and some of the disciples had gone to the tomb and the body wasn't there. And then there was the second part, the appearance, firstly to Mary Magdalene, verses 11 to 18, and then verses 19 to 23 to, to the other disciples. Empty tomb and the appearance. And then there's the third part as well. There's the fact that when Thomas saw the rest of the disciples, they were very different. These were the disciples who, like Thomas, had run away in the Garden of Gethsemane, abandoning Jesus. These were the people who had let him down. And these were the people who also had the huge blow of thinking that everything they had been doing, everything they had been living for these past three years had suddenly come to nothing. All the hopes they had about the, the Messiah and his kingdom coming have now been, in their mind, destroyed. And then, and we are told in verse 19 of the chapter that they were fearful, there's also this business of them being scared that the Jews were going to come for them as well. And they, they had good reason to think that, because didn't Peter get a hard time when Jesus was in trial? People saying to him, oh, you're from Galilee, I recognize the accent, you must be one of them. And so the disciples were a dispirited, defeated bunch. Run away and let Jesus down. Everything they'd been living for come crashing down. The Jews were going to get them. They didn't, you couldn't even go to the supermarket without thinking, oh no, I might get caught. That's, that's the group that Thomas left when he went out wherever he went. And when he comes back, verse 24 and following, the disciples are very different. What's happened? What's cheered them all up all of a sudden? They've met the risen Christ. And so the tomb's empty. Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene and the others. There's the changed lives of the disciples. Thomas, what more do you want? Now, when we are called, and we are called, everyone who's a Christian is called to be a, a witness to others. And that involves both being able to make a case for Christ, to say, this is what we believe and this is why we believe it, and it also involves, in addition to that, being able to say Jesus has made a difference to us in how we're living. And each of these things are vital, just as each wing of an aeroplane is vital. And yet, both giving good reason for believing in Jesus and having our lives changed by Jesus does not guarantee that others are going to believe our testimony. That's what's happening here. 
Thomas had good reasons. The tomb was empty. He could see that his friends, people that he'd trust, people that he'd shared so much with were now changed. But he still wasn't going to believe himself. And when someone refuses to accept the good basis that we have for believing in Christ, and when someone rejects the, the witness of the difference in a believer's life, the only kind of breakthrough that's going to make a difference to such disbelief is a work of God. At this point in the story, it was the appearance of the risen Christ. But after his ascension, he was sending the Holy Spirit, and it's really a work of the Holy Spirit that's needed for someone to come to Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that's going to take someone beyond looking at the arguments, looking at the evidence of changed lives, to saying, yes, this is true for me too. That is one reason, the vital reason, why praying for friends, why praying for family members to become Christians is so important. It's not just arguments. It's not just our changed lives. We cannot, on our own wisdom and strength, bring new life. We need God to be on the move. And so we should be faithful and, and calling out for that and asking God to be in the move. That's what people need. That's what Thomas needed. And here in this passage, that's what Thomas got. Now, Jesus wasn't there in the body when Thomas had said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, etc., and it's not the case that one of the disciples knew where Jesus was being hauled out and he sneaked out from the upper room, went round to find Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, do you know what Thomas said? No, Jesus knew because the risen Christ, as he promised at the end of Matthew's gospel, was going to be with his people for always. And so Jesus, although not in the body, had been there and had heard. He knew what Thomas had said. And now the risen Jesus appeared to Thomas just as Thomas had asked. Unless I see the nail marks, unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And notice, Jesus didn't rush round at once, verse 26. It was a week later. But Jesus hadn't forgotten. Thomas gets exactly what he asked for. Thomas wanted to see the wounds of Jesus as an indication of this really happened. He wanted to see the wounds of Jesus as an indication of Jesus' power. Jesus really could rise from the dead. But when a week later, verse 26 and following, Jesus comes and Jesus says to Thomas, particularly verse 27, put your finger here, Thomas saw the wounds of Jesus for what they really were. Not so much evidence of God's power, but evidence of God's love. They showed not just that Jesus had risen, but that Jesus had risen for him. Jesus had risen for the unworthy, the slow to believe, the doubters, and so on. And that was Thomas. 
And that's you, and that's me. And Jesus, as it were here, is, is holding out the scarred hands, not to say, look what you made me do, but to say, this is how much I love you. This is how much I care. This is what I have gone through for you. And so more than simply being arguments for the resurrection, that this really was Jesus who was risen, these wounds are arguments for God's love. I love you. That's why I've done this. And that's why I've come to show you this. It is significant, I think, verse 27, that Jesus was still scarred, that he still had these wounds that he could show Thomas. At one level, they show that this was the same Jesus. The wounds that went down to the grave with him came back up with him. And they could be seen, and they could have been touched. The one who broke the bonds of death kept his wounds. They say, this is the Messiah. The Savior, His death and His rising that are not something else that happened, and, and this is now something completely different. It's all part of the one gospel, the one story. It is Jesus who has risen. But also, these wounds say to us that suffering matters. The gospel doesn't say suffering's not real. The gospel doesn't say that suffering is unimportant. But nor does it say that suffering has the beating of us. It reveals a God who shares our suffering. A God who so loved the world that He allowed His Son to suffer for the world. And the depth of that suffering, the depth of that love, are shown all the more in the fact that these marks and these wounds are not washed away by the resurrection. It's not that Jesus came and, and did something that was dead easy and, and, you know, just like pottering around in the garden for half an hour and then you could go into the kitchen and, and, and wash your hands and all the marks are gone away. It's not, you know, there are, the story of Jesus is not like that. You know, I came to earth and I, I lived and I spoke to these guys and they put me in a cross and I died and I rose again and then we just washed it off and then we got on with business as it was before. No! The whole of the gospel story, the whole of the rejection of God, the whole, the whole of his love despite the fact that people are turning their backs on him are gathered up in the gospel and part of the gospel story. And Jesus has still got the wounds. The risen, resurrected Jesus is the same Jesus that people were laughing at on the cross. But it's the Jesus who doesn't deny that and say, oh, that doesn't really matter. It's the Jesus who went through that and went through that because he loves you to bits. The wounds in Jesus' body are signs of the wounds in the heart of God at all the sin and suffering in the world. But they're also signs of God's commitment and love to do something about it. And then, lastly, there is verse 28, Thomas's response. Notice that he doesn't say, okay, Jesus, let me, let me really go on and touch. He says, my Lord 
and my God. That is, he doesn't just say, all right, you did rise. Good. His need was not for a bit of information, a bit of evidence. His need was not for something to believe in, but for a Savior to live for. Thomas made the connection between the Jesus that he had been with in the past few years as they ministered in Galilee and Judea. He made the connections between that Jesus and the living Lord who was right in front of him at that very moment. And that's what faith is. Faith is knowing Jesus. It's, it's making the interaction and the connection between the, the life of Jesus that we are told about in the gospel and the experience of the living Christ in the day-to-day -day now. That's what faith is. Jesus is not just a historical figure to hear about and to learn from. He lives today. Jesus is not to be made up just from our own ideas and experiences. Who he is and what he is like and what he wants is shown to us in the Gospels. And so our beliefs are not fantasy. There is a basis, a history, something that hangs together, something that makes sense and can be tried out. But we do not leave Jesus on the pages of the Gospel. It's an all-of-life response that we are called to make. Allowing Jesus to reshape and redirect my Lord and my God. There is all the difference in the world between believing in some kind of remote God and having a living relationship with the living God. But that's what real, that's what Christian faith is. That experience of the gospel story coming alive. That interaction between what's on the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what we taste and experience here and now. You'll know only too well um, that the church in the Western world in recent times has been having a hard time. It's not just because, you know, there's a steady line of progress, and as we go on and learn more, so we have pushed God to the side. That's, that's completely misreading the story of the world. In fact, the church has had hard times before now. One of the hard times in the UK was when the church was in the doldrums, was in the mid-18th century. And things were turned around by what some have referred to as the Great Awakening. It was a movement that revitalized and transformed the church. Spearheaded by the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, and by George Whitfield. And one key part of their work was that they organized the new disciples into societies that met in people's homes. And key to that meeting was the practice of faith as the movement between the Jesus of the Gospels and the living Christ in daily experience. See, that's what matters. That's what makes a difference. Jesus of the Gospels and the Christ of experience coming together as the same. That's what was happening to Thomas here, wasn't it? That, that Jesus, the same Jesus, is, is, is here now, affecting him now. And so when these societies that um, the Wesley brothers and Whitfield set up, when they, when they met in folks' homes, it was precisely that. Is this faith coming alive? 
And so they ask questions of each other like that. How real has God been to your heart this week? Do you really sense His presence in your life? Sense Him giving you love. Are you finding certain biblical promises? I, I can't type properly. Extremely precious, not extremely previous. Are you finding certain biblical promises extremely precious and encouraging? If so, which ones? You see, see what's happening here? They're saying, is this faith coming out, jumping out of the, out of the Scriptures and, and, and being part of you, part of how you live? These and other questions weren't courses that they were putting on for some elite believers. These societies and groups were comprised of many working-class folks. The Great Awakening had its biggest impact amongst the, the working class. And these questions were not part of an exam. They're not heading towards some degree in theology. They were stepping stones to help us encounter the living Christ, to live with the living Christ on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis. Because that's the claim of the gospel, isn't it? And that's the That's the claim that we began the service with, reading a few verses from 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ is risen. Our faith is not in vain, because Christ is risen. And the Christ who is risen and who is alive today is the same Jesus that we read of in the gospel. And the same Jesus who therefore says to us to take up our cross daily and follow, the same Jesus who's committed to loving us, the same Jesus who said, even as he was being crucified, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. The same Jesus who came back to Thomas and didn't beat him up and say, you stupid fool, the tomb's empty, Mary's seen me, the disciples have seen me, look at how different they are. But the the Jesus who was prepared to say to Thomas, come on, here you go. Have a good look. Have a touch. That's the gospel. Is that your gospel? And we're not saying that because um, we want to push up membership of the church. We're not saying that because um, we're wanting more of whatever, commitment or whatever. But because of these final words in verse 29... Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who were not there in that upper room and have not physically seen the the wounds of the risen Christ, but have believed. Not because we like fairy stories, not because we are stupid and think, well, maybe dead people don't stay dead, but because there was an empty tomb because there's the experience of the living Christ day by day, because of the transformation of the lives of his followers, and because as we follow that life of faith, as we face up to those kind of questions that the Wesleys were putting to their followers, so we find that movement, that interaction between 
the Christ of the gospel stories and the living Christ of today adds up, makes sense. Doesn't reclaim remove any and every question that you'll ever have? Doesn't mean that life's going to be an absolute skoosh and there's never going to be any problems. But it means in Jesus' words, and Jesus himself promises this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Be blessed. That's it. We want you to be blessed. And how do you get blessed? Seeing the living Christ and knowing him every day. So how real has God been to your heart this week? Do you really sense his presence in your life? Sense him giving you love. Are you finding certain biblical promises extremely precious and encouraging? Which ones? We're trying to catch people out. We're saying, be blessed. Let us pray.